Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jonathan Rubin. Jonathan is a portfolio analysis at Fido Partners. They're a cannabis investing firm. Uh, we're going to talk to them a little bit about the work that they do in cannabis, what they're seeing. Obviously, the sort of the investment side is a big aspect of the cannabis industry. Trying to find the capital uh, to grow and scale is key. The vast majority of companies require capital to grow, and um, you know, getting that capital in the cannabis market can be a little tricky. So we're going to talk to Jonathan about what they do and talk about the market in general, where he sees things going, some insights. I'm excited for this. I always love talking to the folks that are looking at the money side and figuring out where, where the best bets are and, and why. So with that, Jonathan, welcome to the program. Bruce, thanks for having me. It's yeah. a pleasure to be a guest on your show. Yeah. I watched several other episodes of this podcast, and I saw that you had some phenomenal company leaders on the show, uh, some of which are Fido portfolio companies. Yeah, yeah, no, that happens at this point. We've had we've had a lot of uh, a lot of guests, a lot of companies, and uh, we certainly get some uh, you know whether it's investors and partners and suppliers and things like that. So I'm I'm happy to hear that you've you know some of the folks that have been on. So let's get a little bit of background on on you and on Fido, and then we can kind of talk about some of the work. What what's the backstory? How did you get into cannabis? How did you get involved with Fido? Tell us about the uh, the history. 
Sure. I started my investment career uh, at a firm called Comvest Partners, where I was responsible for sourcing and qualifying deal flow. So I was working in business development there. And basically, my role was to create and maintain relationships with investment banks uh, that were showing us deals and and create a robust uh, deal pipeline and, and basically gauge which companies were in our target zone and which ones to move past the first stage of diligence. And, you know, here at FIDO, I get to work in all the components of the venture capital ecosystem from deal sourcing to portfolio monitoring, uh, due diligence, and and even investor relations. And, you know, I got into the cannabis industry, um, you know, kind of just by chance. I I thought it was a growing industry and and I had an opportunity to work at FIDO Partners. So I kind of just took a leap of faith here. Um, And it was much different or it is much different than Comvest, uh, which looked at primarily control equity deals, later stage companies. And and when I started at FIDO, you know, the industry is still super early, but it was even earlier. And it was very rare to even find companies with, you know, over a million in run rate revenue. So kind of took a a leap of faith here. And it's been super exciting watching these companies grow and evolve over the last three, three years. Yeah. So I guess, I'm curious what, what was, um, I guess, what was different for you? Like as you kind of got involved in cannabis, what did you notice that was unlike, you know, other types of industries, other types of markets? Um, and how did that change things for you as an analyst? Yeah. So I think a lot of it comes down to just the hyper local, you know, regulatory environment with each state having different rules that they need to abide by, you know, so, so looking at each business from a very unique lens, but, you know, at, at FIDO, you know, we, we primarily focus on the ancillary side. So for the most part, you know, these are still software and technology companies that just have to follow more stringent guidelines and, and have to be a little bit more flexible with their offerings because in each state that they offer their products, there could be different, you know, regulatory hurdles that they have to kind of cater um, and custom build their product to, to kind of fit that mold. Yeah. So in terms of the, um, you know, the, this impact of the regulatory framework that all these companies are, are kind of operating within, I mean, how, how does that change the analysis? I mean, is this, do you really have to do like a state by state? How is this company you know, competing, you know, what is the regulatory framework? How does their business model kind of play into that? I mean, I guess how, how does this, the, the fact that you have these sort of fractured state-by-state markets, you know, kind of change the way you actually look at the investment strategies or, or where you're going to place money, how you're going to place money, any good examples of, of how you've kind of found opportunities within that that are kind of unique to states? Yeah. And I guess if we separate ancillary and plant touching, it would probably be helpful. Yeah. On the plant touching side, you know, these companies need licenses to, you know, cultivate and dispense dispense the cannabis. So right now I'd say it's it's really a land grab for a lot of these licensed operators. But, you know, moving kind of towards the ancillary side, we like to see, you know, which states these companies are actually servicing. And see, you know, do they have concentration on the West Coast in California or even near, you know, in Colorado, or are they primarily, you know, working on the East Coast? And then, you know, we kind of just fit our analysis based on that. And, you know, we'll invest in similar companies if they are, you know, if their primary uh, concentration are, are in different states. So I guess that's kind of like... A, a little bit of an example, for for instance, uh, you know, GreenBits is is a point of sale um, point of sale retail management software, and they primarily you know service clients in Washington, and, and basically 
they don't have a tremendous overlap with another of our portfolio companies, Flowhub. So, you know, there's not tremendous overlap there. They, they kind of uh, cater a similar solution in terms of they are the retail management platform for dispensaries, but they service a slightly different um, group of dispensaries. Yeah. And um, w- when you do your investment kind of analysis, what are you really looking for and, and how much of this is just general you know, things that any investor would be looking at in any company and how much of it is kind of specific in terms of cannabis or, or how does that kind of change when you're looking at cannabis from your kind of evaluation, kind of assessment from uh, an investment opportunity point of view? Yeah. So, you know, I'd say we're looking for companies with above around, you know, two, three million dollar run rate. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of one uh, criteria. And, and I'd say we're life cycle investors, right? So when we started in 2015, um, there were, you know, barely any companies with, you know, over a million dollars in, in, in revenue run rate. So we were yeah. investing in more early stage companies. But as the industry has evolved and developed, we've kind of shifted our thesis to invest in more later stage mature companies. So, so that could be, you know, following on in existing investments or, or just looking, you know, further along the life cycle, whether it be, you know, Series A, Series B rounds of fundraising. Yeah. And uh, as so you're mentioning the sort of plant touching versus non-plant touching, I guess what, what is, are, are you, you would invest in any, anywhere at any time? Do you have a split between these things? And I'm curious on the, the non-plant touching side, any particular aspects of non-plant touching that you're, that you're most interested in? Yeah. So once we saw Constellation brands invest into canopy growth, our thesis um, sort of evolved. Uh, we still primarily invest in ancillary software and technology companies, but uh, we're definitely more opportunistic on the plant touching side uh, now. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I think, you know, this is probably even more applicable for, for your listeners. Um, you know, the public markets are ripe with opportunities for the plant touching companies. You know, I still think despite the run that we've had with a lot of the, the MSOs, the multi-state operators, I think there's still a lot of uh, future potential just within those companies. Uh, cannabis is expected to be a $100 billion market in the year 2030. Um, and those estimates uh, continue to be revised to the upside. And these operators probably will be doing around 25% EBITDA margins long-term, uh, sl- maybe slightly higher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now, just the multiples, just to put it in perspective, um, TrueLeaf trades at, let's say, like a- around 11 times um, EV to sales. And Canopy right. Growth up in Canada trades at 30 times EV to wow. sales. And TrueLeaf And why, did, why the difference? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry? Why, why, why the difference? So I think it's primarily due to, well, first of all, canopy growth trades on the New York Stock Exchange, and there's much more liquidity with those stocks, um, for one, uh, and institutional investors can actually invest into those companies. Right now, you're, you're having basically artificially lower demand for U.S. operators because you know, hedge funds and institutions really cannot touch these stocks. I mean, my brother yeah. works at a hedge fund up in New York City, and um, they cannot invest in cannabis, even if they, you know, even if they wanted to. The compliance department does not let them. So I think that's part of it, mm-hmm. you know. And not to mention, these U.S. cannabis companies are paying an effective tax rate of somewhere near 50% because of the 280E tax laws, which basically don't let them write off normal business expenses. They can only write off their cost of goods sold. So that's very, you know, that's that's definitely not uh, conducive to 
you know, growing their cash flows and growing the business, you know, growing their cash flows and growing the business. Additionally, an interest rate on debt that's above where they would qualify if they were not a cannabis business, because these companies are proving to be cash flow positive, high margin businesses. And, you know, once once there is an event that allows them to you know, have bank accounts and potentially uplist onto you know a U.S. exchange, I think I think there's a ton of upside to be had. Yeah, and for the non-plant touching uh, space, what what are you most interested in, or where where do you see the big opportunities, and where have you seen activity? So the non-plant touching space, I mean, we're still really interested in software and technology, and even in data providers. So I think advertising technology is still a vertical that needs to be tapped into a little bit further. Um, I don't see any clear market share leadership, but we do have an investment in a company that is probably the closest to that called Philo. And they're an ad tech platform that that basically they capture data from dispensaries and um, can help target those customers for both, you know, non, non-cannabis businesses. So let's just say, you know, a Dunkin' Donuts wants to target, you know, a cannabis user. They can do that. You know, Philo helps Dunkin' Donuts do that. So I think ad tech is is super interesting. I also think um, that as the industry has kind of matured, there isn't, you know, there aren't many, uh, you know, brand new companies that I could see, you know, disrupting, let's just say the point of sale vertical, just because, you know, a lot of those companies already have a significant market share and they have pretty, you know, large balance sheets and big teams. So I'd I'd say it would be tough to kind of, disrupt one of those verticals or even like a, a leaf link, which I know you had Ryan Smith on the show, Yeah, like to disrupt, you know, a wholesale B2B marketplace like that would be very tough, especially considering they just raised, you know, around $40 million from Founders Fund, who uh, is one of the most, which is one of the most iconic venture funds in the world. So just seeing, yeah. you know, seeing institutional capital like that coming into the space is really a, you know, a telltale sign that this is uh this is going to be something big. Yeah. And what are the, um, as you kind of are working with these companies or, or looking at uh, the investment options and you see kind of the uncertainties in the kind of the regulatory frameworks, the legal frameworks that are operating in and kind of potential changes to these. And we've had a couple of states come on board. We have a change of administration. Like what are the things that you're looking at in terms of kind of policy and regulation and, and the legal frameworks that, that are going to impact or, or that you're kind of watching and, and what are you watching for and how does it change your kind of view of the industry or, or strategy on what to invest in and, and, and why? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the elections in Georgia just kind of catapulted any sort of growth yeah. and kind of brought it to the more near term. Obviously, we have the three potential pieces of regulatory framework that could definitely impact how these businesses operate and, and what they're allowed to do. You know, the, the SAFE Banking Act, the States Act, and then the MORE Act. The SAFE Act is basically, you know, federal protections for banking services. So these companies would now be allowed to use federally chartered banks to, to you know, to run their business, which they're not able to do currently. Yeah. And I think, you know, more likely in the near term, probably call it six to 12 months, we could see the Safe Banking Act pass or even the States Act, which basically is the deferment uh, of authority to individual states. And if that were to pass, it would basically, the Safe Banking Act would kind of be irrelevant because it would it would encompass that as well. 
So I think those are the two that are more likely to pass. And then the Moore Act, which would be federal legalization, and it would start to develop a framework for interstate commerce. I think that's less likely, Mm -hmm. but it still is a possibility. And that would be a piece of legislation that allows these companies to uplift on U.S. exchanges, which would be a tremendous liquidity event for these operators and for the industry. And I think that's when we would really see the multiples that investors are willing to pay for profits or uh, the multiple of revenue. I think that's when we would see that really expand and we'd see much more investor interest in the space. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you're anticipating or or your kind of future assessment or vision is that you're still going to have these sort of state by state markets at some level that we're not going to go to just a completely open federal market. And, you know, I could buy Humboldt County weed down the corner here in New Jersey, right? Like it's, it's, there's still going to be some kind of state by state regulatory framework, you know, that these companies need to operate within. Is that, is that what you think? I mean, I guess give give me your sense on how quickly or, or if we'd ever get to a just purely open federal market. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce. That's something that we can only speculate. I really, you know, a lot of people have different answers and you even see, you know, the way some of these multi-state operators are, are, you know, positioning themselves that even, you know, even they are not entirely certain. So you have a Leaf that's building facilities in each and every state, you know, that they operate in and, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're not really concentrating in one or two particular regions. Versus a true leave, let's just say, which, you know, is, is running more of a hub, hub and spoke model, Kim Rivers likes to call it, which, you know, sh- they're concentrating in Florida and they're concentrating in the in the Northeast. And, you know, they're kind of they're more positioned to benefit from the economies of scale of interstate commerce. So, you know, I don't have a great answer for you on that, but I do think that if and when the Moore Act does pass, a framework for interstate commerce will, will begin to, to be developed. But I still think that some states could choose whether or not to keep the operations purely within their state. But, you know, long story yeah. short there, I don't have a great answer. Yeah. Well, I think I, I don't think anyone does. <laughs> I just, you know, it's all like you said, it's all speculation right now. And, you know, a bit of a guessing game. Yeah. But I'm, it's been very interesting to see how some of these companies have kind of placed some bets or at least, you know, position themselves to either to take advantage or to protect themselves against some of these things. I mean, as you look at the cannabis companies themselves, you know, as you're working with your portfolio companies and kind of understanding where their challenges and stuff are, like from an operational point of view right now, what are the big, I guess, what are the big challenges or what are the big things that people are focused on, you know, given where the industry is, where they are as a company, what are, what are the things that are sort of driving kind of the challenges and and the focus in in terms of actually running these companies? Yeah, I'd say a large part of it is, is having a balance sheet that can support future growth because it's really right right now is the time to kind of you know on the licensed operator side to either make acquisitions which mm-hmm. I'm sh- I'm sure you've you've been seeing I mean there is oh, yeah. going to be a huge consolidation that's already starting to occur and it's going to probably continue with these you know these larger MSOs raising large funding rounds to essentially, you know, acquire these smaller scale operators. And then on the ancillary side, I'd say it's, it's quite similar. These companies are, you know, trying to secure a strong balance sheet so that they can, you know, have some runway into the future and invest in growth. So I just, you know, I see that as being something that they are, you know, that, that's top of mind. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, finding the money, are most companies, I'm curious how, People are kind of blending debt and equity, 
you know, vehicles to to do some of this raise. What what are you seeing? Are people still rely upon you know equity funding? Are they you know leveraging debt in different ways? What's available? How is that playing out in the market? Yeah, so on the on the public side and with the plant touching companies, I'd say that you are starting to see more you know debt raises, which was very uh, which was not happening you know just probably three or four years ago. So, so that's yeah. definitely a positive sign for the industry. As far as the, like the software and technology companies, we're still primarily you know, focusing on equity. Um, our fund in particular only really does equity. Uh, we do occasionally you know, do some sort of convertible notes. A lot of the, the software and tech companies aren't raising debt capital just yet until they have predictable enough cash flows. But you know, the, the debt markets kind of coming alive is definitely a good sign for the industry. Yeah. Yeah. But just as an example, just on the debt side, I think TrueLeave pays around 11 or 12% on their debt. Uh-huh. And an otherwise similar company with similar financial metrics would probably be paying around 7 or 8%. So it just shows you the cannabis premium. Well, so why are they paying more for their debt, though? Like, what's, what's the underlying logic or, yeah, or risk? I think it's just because cannabis is federally illegal. So yeah. the providers of that debt capital are collecting a risk premium. Although, you know, they really don't have to worry if TrueLeaf's going to pay back that debt. So they're getting a, a sweetheart deal. Yeah, it, does, it, seem, it seems like it's kind deal. of a combination of, yes, there, there's some slightly more risk inherently in cannabis just because of the, the federal kind of issue and the federal uncertainty. But also, I mean, it's probably to a certain extent supply and demand. I mean, it's just because there's not as many people offering debt solutions, mm-hmm. you know, are willing to get into kind of the debt side that it's going to increase the price. But if, I yeah. mean, would you, if a lot of people, if, if things changed and all of a sudden there's a lot more debt available to cannabis companies, my guess is the rates would come down to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point too. So yeah, I'd say it's also because of the artificially lower demand on the investor side. Yeah. As you've kind of looked out there for some of the newer, more innovative, you know, companies in the cannabis space, is there any any particular companies or any type of companies or subsector here that is particularly interesting? I mean, you, you mentioned some of the advertising was, you know, definitely up and coming. As you look at the maturity of the market, what else do you think is going to become, you know, important or you know, start to be kind of growth areas inside cannabis? I would say one area that's pretty interesting, although you know we're not scientists here, is synthetic <laughs> cannabinoids. Yeah. And all that means is, you know, the production of THC, CBD, and some of the miners like CBG, CBN um, in a laboratory. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're keeping our eyes peeled on that and kind of we have basically a list of companies that we are continuing to monitor and try to understand. But something like that, given the fact that we're not scientists, we, we like to take our time there. And I think that's you know a big thing with investing in a company outside your core competencies is to believe and follow other believable people. So one of the nice things about investing is you don't always have to be the first fund or, or first investor in a deal. So if we find that a very believable person, somebody that's had success in this vertical or in a similar vertical a couple of times in their career, I think it's a good a good sign that, hey, this might be a good opportunity to really look into. And then we can analyze it from a financial perspective and future growth perspective. And then additionally, yeah. I think, you know, certain areas that are already established, like, you know, ERP systems that help the growers connect with metric and state compliance. You know, although there are companies with leading market share in that subsector, I think that there are certain companies that are poised to kind of disrupt uh, that subsector. And when we're looking at earlier stage companies that are trying to 
get into a more mature subsector of the cannabis industry like that, we like to see that they're able to take clients or take market share from some of the incumbents. And, and that's usually a good sign for us that, hey, this company is you know, a disruptor. They're doing something differently that uh, is clearly of value to the licensed operators. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I mean, as you I guess if you were, if you if you were an entrepreneur right now, if you were starting a new company inside cannabis, like where where would you start it? Like where where do you think the kind of untapped or unmet needs are, or or areas that you think are going to be most interesting? Um, you know, in terms of early stage early stage companies to kind of get involved in cannabis right now. So, if an early stage company getting involved, you know, I, I really think that it's it's all about you know tackling these new states that have opened up. Um, I'm not sure exactly which vertical, so so I'm going to say I don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's more geography. It's just, just getting involved in these states that are most, yeah. any particular states that you're most interested in. I mean, I know we had a couple, you know, come online here or you know pass some pass ballot initiatives and and whatnot in the last election cycle. What uh, out of the ones that that um, you know made some changes? What are you most interested in? So I think well, th- this is kind of different than the the new ones, but I think that long term. California is going to be a very interesting market uh, to be a part of. But from an investor perspective, currently, we're, we're more focused on limited license states. I think, you know, I think Pennsylvania and Florida um, in the next couple of years are going to go wreck. And I think those are going to be very, very interesting states. And also New York. New York mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, Governor, Governor Cuomo continues to talk about how they want to establish a rec program in the next 12 months. So I think, you know, all three of those states are going to be extremely interesting. And also New Jersey. I I think that I think that they're going to blow projections of sales out of the water once the program actually, you know, commences. It might take a little bit longer than anticipated. But, you know, investors in this current environment with interest rates extremely low, investors are paying for future growth. And that's what I think a lot of people are missing. People that believe that the cannabis sector, you know, after this recent run is overvalued. I mean, if you just look at the 25% CAGR cumulative annual growth rate uh, up until 2030 and, and potentially beyond, I mean, these companies are going to look cheap if you fast forward, you know, five, six years. Yeah. So, uh, so for, you know, people that are are looking to raise money, like what, what are the things you you look for, or I guess, what re- what advice would you give them? What recommendations would you give them in terms of you know how to what to focus on, how to kind of set themselves up, you know, and, and what advice would you give you know folks that are in that position in terms of how to best raise money at a decent valuation? So, Bruce, have you ever heard the saying, "If you ask for advice, you get money, but if you ask for money, you get advice"? I'd yeah, say exactly you know, that's, classic. Yeah, I'd say that's a, a good uh, psychological framework for founders to utilize when they're going out and raising capital, uh, not seeming to be you know overly desperate, but at the same time you know engaging these investors over a long period of time. You know, sometimes you know we'll pass on a deal, but we'll we'll come back and, and look at it several months later if they continue to send us updates and, and keep us in the loop. So I think, you know, being persistent, you know, there's a fine line between being persistent and coming across as overly desperate. That is kind of a a turnoff for investors in the space. And I'd also say, you know, building your product for the customer, uh, not just to display, you know, fancy metrics to investors. I think that, you know, speaks volume. Yeah. Um, You know, and last piece of advice, I'd say, especially for 
early stage companies, uh, for founders of early stage companies, you know, if you're not willing to forego salary or, or put a substantial portion of your net worth into the business, you know, why should the investor stand to lose more than you? So yeah. I'd say having skin in the game is crucial when we're looking at early stage companies, especially. Yeah. Yeah, I always find like that the the time to start talking to investors is not when you're looking to raise money. <laughs> you want to yeah. you want to do that a year before, right? Because it's it's like the you know building those relationships take time, and you know yes, it's certainly going to come across as a much more of a pressured uh, investment situation rather than a real strategic relationship. So you know the, the good piece of advice, Jonathan. This has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you about Fido, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, thank you so much, Bruce. Uh, so you can visit us at phytopartners.com, and that's P-H-Y-T-O, partners. And, you know, anybody can you know, feel free to reach out if you have, you know, ex- an exciting business or just want to, you know, chat about the industry. My email is jonathan at phytopartners.com. Great. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes there so people can get a hold of that. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.